3: What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver of the Washington Post, and I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina. Michael, mixed emotions as we tape this on a Monday morning after a, uh, Pretty entertaining concluding chapter to The Last Dance. Now, we're going to save some of the, I guess, more detailed conversations about episodes 9 and 10 for for um, our Friday episode, uh, like usual. But there was so much going on and really some news-worthy uh, things, I think, at the end of the documentary and also kind of coming up here in this big wave of uh, media coverage over the last couple of days that I do think we're going to have to dive into that as well. So uh, let's just start from the top. To me, the the single biggest claim by Michael Jordan came uh, right near the end of episode 10 when they're trying to wrap things up after that 1998 title, uh, the sixth of, in eight years, the second in two years over the Utah Jazz. And Michael Jordan made the claim on camera to the director that he would have been willing to sign a one-year contract to come back for that 1998-1999 season um, you know rather than having the bulls blow up while they were on top Uh, he also claimed that many of the role players um, on that group would have been lured back by the promise of going for a seventh title he said that he believed Phil Jackson could have been talked into uh, returning for another year if things had played out properly. He did acknowledge, uh, by the way, that, okay, maybe it would have been hard to keep Scottie Pippen away from his payday, you know, the ultimate deal that he got mm-hmm. to uh, to go play with the Houston Rockets and then later the um, Portland Trailblazers, but he still had this vision in his head, Michael, that maybe the Bulls could have somehow been kept together I'm curious, um, you know, we we talked about this all the way back at the beginning of the documentary. Why did the Bulls blow up? Why did the Bulls blow up? And here's Jordan's version of basically, look, uh, management mishandled things from the start of the season, uh, and, uh, you know, they could have kept us together if they wanted to, and I was in, but they weren't. What do you make of this uh, viewpoint, Michael? Are you buying what MJ is selling? <laughs>
0: I mean, it it all goes back to Krauss, right? And one of the great tragedies of this whole project is that Jerry Krauss was not alive to contribute and to give his two cents. Uh, we do have, um, you know, his unpublished, unfinished memoir, which goes into detail about that final season and and particularly how they would have addressed some of the problems going into the 88 no, 1998, 99 season. Um, the way I see it is that like it, just speaking about Kraus, I mean it's such a complicated legacy. and I mean here's a guy who won Executive of the Year before the Bulls won any titles. He built his team around Jordan. He drafts Scotty, he drafts Horace Grant. Um, he understands the the value of shooters like John Paxson and Steve Kerr and rebounders and getting big men who don't need or want the ball because, you know, even though Jordan was a wing and it was just there was a lot of skepticism that the doc goes over in detail about how at that time it wasn't believed that a player, a guard or a wing could be the best player on a championship winning team like that. So I give Kraus credit there. But then like uh, just to outline what he says in the in his, in his memoir, basically, you know, the, the team was crumbling before our very eyes in that 1998, the, in the, the last dance season.
3: Yeah. And... Let me hop in real quick. So this memoir, sure. as you mentioned, unpublished and unfinished, which um, is sad in and of its own right. I mean, he definitely, yeah. you know, had a, a certain period of distance to put that thing together. And I think that Had it been published, um, it could have made waves, right? I mean, I'm not saying that it was going to be like Jordan Rules Part 2, but I think there were a lot of people who followed this stuff closely, who understood his role and realized that if he was going to speak honest about Jordan, they would have looked for that book. Now, these excerpts that we're discussing um, were disclosed on NBC Sports uh, Chicago by the excellent uh, longtime Bulls writer, Casey Johnson, Um, and so uh, I just want to provide that as background. Sure. So,
0: I mean, there's a line in there, and it's, it's during the last championship run in 1998, cracks in the foundation of the teams we'd built began to alarmingly show up at inopportune times. And I read that sentence, and in my head, I'm like, this should not be how you rationalize not running it back. Like, dude, you just won the freaking title. Like, I understand that Dennis Rodman's career ended shortly thereafter. He was 36 years old, physically declining. The Scottie Pippen thing where he's probably going to bounce. He's not going to re-sign for the one year, $14 million, which was the maximum that the Bulls could pay. Um, and I get that. And then there's Luke Longley, who, you know, they, he Kraus writes about how Luke Longley's body was kind of crumbling. As well, and uh, it just it would have been very difficult to bring all those pieces back and have them been as healthy as possible. But, like, in my head, I'm thinking, how like your job is to keep it going at all costs. If Michael Jordan is to be believed, uh, and some of what he said throughout these 10 episodes has been a little bit, you know, revisionist, but if he is to be believed and he would have come back and played that season. Uh, And we assume that he, you know, he doesn't slice his finger open on the the cigar cutter, which eventually happened and would have kind of derailed the whole experiment. Um, Which, by the way, is just an ultimate Achilles heel moment, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, tell me about it. Um, You know, if he's to believe that he would have come back and all that, and he could have talked Phil into coming back. Uh, which uh, Krauss is pretty skeptical of uh, in the the unpublished memoir, Uh, I mean, it's your duty to keep it going. And this is kind of where I go back to blaming Reinsdorf for all of this. And, you know, Reinsdorf speaks about uh, if they were to keep it going, they would have had to go above, quote, market value to... Uh, retain some of the players, the role players who helped make the Chicago Bulls, the Chicago Bulls. And that's just the most frustrating part of all of this. Well, so especially like
3: tra- in the modern context, right? Because how many times do we see those role guys get paid? I mean, Cleveland, every role guy got paid for LeBron, right? Miami, they had to re-up on some of the role guys. Um, and when they didn't with a guy like Mike Miller, LeBron lost his mind. It was like completely frustrated. Yeah. Golden State, constantly kind of re-upping on role guys, or you have the opportunity to try to go out and replace them. I mean, you have to be really creative. And I think that was the problem is the front office at that point sort of you know, ran out of solutions and options. I mean, Krauss also in his memoir talks about not having any really good draft picks for a long stretch there, which definitely you know changes things. If you can't bring in, uh, you know, kind of lottery type talent and, and put them into your system and have them build, you really have to nail your your late first round draft picks, and uh, you know that's a hit or miss proposition for any team uh, in really any era. Here's the thing, Michael. I reading Krauss's defense, and I encourage everyone to go read it. Some of it lined up for me logically, right? Um, like Longley, he pretty much gets ignored throughout this entire documentary, but they were they were saying that he was at a point where he was going to get paid a lot and his body wasn't going to hold up. And, and that's sort of how it played out for him. Rodman, um, as you'll find out when you watch episodes nine to 10, Michael, I mean, he was just at the end of the run. I mean, like you just basically couldn't count on him. And I imagine Chicago was looking at that Rodman piece like, well, when we didn't have Horace Grant in the you know the the eastern conference playoffs against Orlando that was a mm-hmm. big hole we had no way to fill it and there wasn't really anyone who was going to be able to go out there and do what Robin did i think ultimately the Pippen thing might have been the the hammer for all of this right like if they didn't think that they could keep Pippen and he was basically out the whole thing was going to kind of crumble almost no matter what right so you start adding up those missing pieces and it's really difficult to envision a title contender around Jordan um, when his supporting cast is like going to require you to overpay for guys like Steve Kerr and Ron Harper and try to like, you know, uh, promote some other backup centers or Uh, you know, milk whatever you can out of a guy like Wennington or something. I mean, that's not much of a squad. I don't think that team is winning the 1999 title. And so that's why I think from Jordan's side on this, I think it's just a little bit of wishful thinking. And I'm going to read you one quote, which I thought was actually a pretty money quote from Jordan. He says, you know, basically the idea of not being able to, uh, you know, continue, keep things going was, quote, maddening. I felt like we could have won seven. I really believe that. We may not have, but to not be able to try, that's something that I just can't accept for whatever reason. I just can't accept it. And in this moment, it's like the guy who settled every score on the court sounds so unsettled in his life story, right? It's sort of like, hey, I didn't have control over this situation. This was a moment where um, all these other narratives around me kind of just worked against me, and I couldn't keep things together no matter how hard I tried. And I'm watching the footage from that 98 finals, Michael, and I'm just thinking, first of all, ridiculous, unreal. I mean, this is why, (laughs) this is why I, you know, put Jordan up on this goat uh, pedestal you know, show after show here, right? But my second thought is, this is not sustainable, man. Like, you know, Pippen's got back injury. Rodman is up to all sorts of nonsense off the court. Uh, you know, Kerr came through in some big moments for sure, but you know, he's he's not an All Star level player. This thing was just kind of naturally crumbling, and I wonder if Krauss was just out in front of it. I wonder if he did. You know, maybe too far out in front, and certainly he could have done things differently at the start of the season, uh, and maybe there wouldn't have been as many hurt feelings. But I think it was just time for this thing to end. I mean, what you just
0: said really reminds me of uh, what happened with, you know, not wanting to see. Uh, a, a proud dynasty uh, decay before your very eyes with Jordan, Pippen, and Rodman. Um, it reminds me of uh, something that Danny Ainge had to deal with uh, at the end of the uh, KG era with the Boston Celtics, and how you know he discussed all the time publicly about how he thought that the if the first big three Boston Celtics in the '80s when he was a player. Uh, He thought that uh, Red Auerbach held on to Larry Bird and Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish for too long, and it prevented them from uh, kind of rebuilding on the fly and revamping and keeping things going as long as possible. But the obvious, I mean, difference here is that the Bulls just won three straight championships. And so, uh, you know, the Celtics win one in three years, they go to the finals twice, and then they make the... The, the, the KG Pierce trade to the Brooklyn Nets, which I, like, I have a really hard time believing that if the Celtics won the three straight championships, that that trade still happens. Do you do you kind of get what I'm saying? Like, For sure. you got to keep it going until they lose.
3: Yeah, no, I hear you. I mean, I think also one other telling aspect of this is Phil Jackson, because in the documentary, they reveal this like last minute, last ditch offer almost like a show of respect from Reinsdorf to Phil Jackson so all year long they've told Phil hey guess what if you go 82 and 0 we're still not bringing you back like that's been the story for the whole year they win the title and Reinsdorf's like hey Phil do you want to come back for a year and (laughs) um, like obviously that's just ludicrous and almost kind of a slap in the face but you know I understand Reinsdorf is probably you know caught up in the moment and thinking hey I gotta you know try to make things right at least let Phil know he's valued and Phil's response to that was very cold. He was just sort of like, you know, I'm good. You know, I, I think that this whole thing is done. You know, I've had enough of Jerry. I think he's just had enough of the entire situation. And basically, I think Phil saw the writing on the wall. And so it's really tricky because Jordan had a lot of high-level basketball left in him. There's no doubt, right? And so having him walk away from the game at 98 because of these all, all these other conditions and factors is really frustrating and the idea that he couldn't come up with a next chapter for himself after the la- last dance, you know, he couldn't pull the strings like some superstars do where LeBron's going to LA or Katie's going to Brooklyn. Like they came up with a new story and kind of refresh things. Um, he just wasn't able to do that at that point. He couldn't conceive of a, another situation, and and that part to me is frustrating because he left a lot of good basketball on the table. Um, it's not as sad and, and kind of like crippling as the first retirement was for people, because you know I, I think everyone understood that age and miles had accumulated at that point for Jordan. Uh, but still, it is a shame, and I think that's where you're coming from. Is like you know the, the what could have been might not have been a seventh title, but it still could have been another. MVP caliber season, scoring title, and you know fifty wins like that was you know within the realm of possibility if you had Jordan as your centerpiece.
0: Yeah, and I don't know if this is even mentioned in the doc or just common knowledge, but Jordan led the league in scoring that year the the fi- the last dance season and also the previous two years. Like as you said, I mean the guy was he was thirty four years old, but. Still, easily the best player alive, and so to just kind of forego that is just really disappointing. And when we go back and we look at the what happened with Scotty and what happened with Phil and their discontent, like I'm sorry, but uh, you have to kind of look at the general manager in those situations and look at his behavior and why things soured as they did. And I mean. We've talked about this, but Krauss was at the center of of that toxic atmosphere in a lot of different ways. And so even though financially and, you know, there were health problems to deal with and, and Scotty wanting to be paid and all that and how that is rationalized as, as, or used as a justification for moving on, like Krauss at the, is at the center of that. And he is the cause for that in a lot of different ways. And if he behaved differently, then they might not have got, gotten to that point. So, again, I just think it's really disappointing. I, I no. agree with everything that you're saying for sure. And I just wish that we got to see them lose, honestly. I think that that would have been a really more uh, just fascinating human look at, like, just I, watching them lose on the court would have been a much more fascinating end to things than how it played
3: out, I think. Yeah, I mean, don't worry. They were still going to beat the Celtics every time out. But, you know, I, I hear you. <laughs> uh, no, I tease. I think what you're you're almost arguing is that there's been this... There's this take out there that Jordan's leadership style doesn't really deserve credit for, you know, within Chicago's overall framework, that obviously his his skills are what really mattered, and that if he had been, you know, just a different personality, they probably still could have won an awful lot. Um, he would argue against that, saying he had to bring some of these guys up to his standard. But, you know, when he's crossing the line repeatedly, it, it does seem like, okay, uh, is the 17th time... Uh, you're calling Scott Burrell a demeaning name, really inspiring him to score six points in the playoffs. <laughs> like that doesn't really add up, right? Um, but I also think what you're you're maybe arguing now is that if Krauss had had a different leadership personality, right, that this whole mm-hmm. thing could have played out differently. It wouldn't have en- ended how it did, and that's a, a moment where you're imagining a, maybe a uniter uh, like a, a Bob Myers. Or an RC Buford who's willing to understand his role and step back and let Popovich, you know, kind of be the the main voice. Maybe that kind of a personality would have been able to keep things together. Maybe it would have kept Phil happy. Maybe it would have found a way to properly value Pippen, and, and the whole thing comes out differently. Uh, I think you're onto something there too. Uh, I just want to make sure we're we're holding MJ accountable here as well because I, I think the story that he presented. Um, at the end of episode 10, to me, it just doesn't really pass muster this idea of like, it just sounds like a grand fantasy. Oh, we're all going to sign one-year deals. It's going to be great. Well, it's like, Michael, your one-year deal (laughs) is for like $35 million. Like all these other guys are leaving 20 million on the table in long-term contracts. Um, You mentioned um, Michael Jordan's Achilles moment, you know, slicing his finger uh, with the cigar cutter. And that kind of puts him into a tricky situation. Is he going to be able to play that following season? Now, Devante emailed us at openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com to ask about another external factor that maybe was outside of the Bulls' control as they were considering their future. He writes, after seeing how physically and emotionally taxed the 98 NBA title run was, I was surprised to hear Jordan say during the interview that looking back, he would have been willing to sign another one-year contract to come back and win a seventh. My question is: Would the effects of the 99 lockout have had an overall positive or negative impact on the Bulls and their title chances? And do you think they would have won their seventh title that year? Great question, Devante. So obviously, they only played a 50-game season that year, Michael. So you would think um, that would have favored the Bulls because you know it's less grind and maybe a more rest period. Um, however. I guess the real question here, Devontae, is who's on the Bulls? Who's coming back? Um, Michael, do you have any sense for how this might have played out or what role the lockout might have played uh, on Chicago's quest for seven?
0: Well, I think for this hypothetical, I would like to just uh, like pretend that they got everybody back for one more year. And obviously, MJ doesn't slice his index finger open or anything like that. Um, because, I, I mean... Theoretically, yeah, they could have signed Scotty Pippen. He was 32 years old. They, they could have thrown him a payday. There's nothing that is against that in the rule book from happening. So let's just hypothetically say that, you know, they maybe they re signed Scotty on a long term deal, Jordan one year, whatever. They bring everybody back who was a key player on the 97, 98 team. Um, I actually think that the lockout would have, I, like, I can't really actually come to a definitive conclusion on if I think it would have helped or not, because, yes, I agree with what you're saying about how it's shorter, only 50 games, but if you remember, like, there were back-to-back-to-backs, like, they were trying to speed race through that regular season to get to the playoffs, and that's just not everything that we know about, you know, sports science and the, the human body and uh, how the NBA has tried to space out games. Uh, in recent years and avoid back-to-backs like i just think that that could have been totally debilitating physically and mentally and for a guy like jordan who straight up refused to miss games he played in all 82 in those last three seasons after he came back from playing baseball um i just don't know how he would have reacted physically um his body could have easily broken down um and so I, I, I just don't know. Like, I, w- would we even see reduced minutes? Would we see nights off? Would we see the birth of a different kind of load management? Like, what are your thoughts about that?
3: Well, that's the thing. This is where you wish that he had um, an advisor who could sort of uh, really preach to him and really get through to him and actually change his mind. Because the standard for reaching the finals that year was the New York Knicks, who went 27-23. and 23 During the regular season, right? So like they're above 500, but not by that much. Um, I'm pretty sure Jordan and the Bulls could have managed to go 27 and 23, even if Jordan's like sitting out the second and third nights of back to back to backs, right? So if there was someone who could have gone through to him and been like, "Look, these are extraordinary circumstances. You proved everything that was needed to be proved last year during the finals." you need to just consider, you know, slightly adjusting your approach to the game. This isn't a normal NBA season. Chill out. Save everything for the Eastern Conference Finals and Finals, right? Um, I feel like they would have had a decent chance, especially if they could have gotten Pippen back. Um, they would have had big front court holes like we mentioned. I don't really know how they plug those and they probably are losing uh, at least a few of their uh, their other rotation players, which is tricky. But mm-hmm. the idea that the Knicks can make the finals at 27 and 23, uh, you know, to me, that, that seems like a pretty darn low bar for Jordan. I, I do wonder, though, do they lose that 99 finals uh, against a team that's got a lot of talent, that's big, that's imposing, that's hungry um, in the San Antonio Spurs? What do you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, I was going through all the teams from that season and trying to match them up with the Bulls. I mean, first of all, I want to point out, I think, like, the Utah Jazz were kind of the closest thing to a parallel that we had with those Bulls teams. I mean, they go to two straight finals. This is the third one. They're they're led by, you know, an aging core Um Carl Malone wins the MVP in 1999, coming off those two straight finals appearances. Jordan is no longer in the league, but the Utah Jazz lose in the second round to a young Portland team, 27-year-old Isaiah Ryder, young Rasheed Wallace, Damon Stoudemire. I mean, Malone and Jeff Hornacek were 35. Uh, John Stockton was 36. They got nothing from their bench. I think that that team is a real nice parallel with the Bulls if you're trying to look at the Bulls and be like they would not have prevailed in the Eastern Conference. But then, as you say, like, the Knicks came out of the East. So, like, our, I mean, that that Knicks team was a little younger. They had Allen Houston. They traded for Latrell Sprewell, 29-year-old Larry Johnson. The Pacers are there. Um, the Knicks beat the Pacers in the Eastern Conference Finals. That same team that took the Bulls to seven in the previous years. Eastern Conference Finals, and it was basically the same cast. Um, Reggie Miller was terrible in that series, by the way. But like, if I'm just looking at size as a big problem for this Bulls team, especially if Rodman, uh, you know, he's, I guess, he, I guess he would have been 37 years old. And in real life, he, he was signed by the Lakers, and they waived him before the playoffs. So like, he was clearly done. Let's say Rodman isn't really a factor. Uh, the number one seed in the East that year was the Miami Heat. They had a, a young PJ Brown and Alonzo Mourning in their front court. The Knicks had Camby, Marcus Camby, Kurt Thomas, and 250 pound Larry Johnson. And like I said, the Pacers were basically the exact same roster. And, you know, having gone back and watched game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals in 98, I would assume that that Pacers team is not going to let the Bulls grab every single offensive rebound. So I think size would have been really interesting. Uh, I, again, just don't want to doubt Michael Jordan, though, and it's really difficult to. You got to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um
3: no, but, I, I yeah, hear you, the- man. They're not getting through all those, all those teams. So I think they're getting through the Eastern Conference with a pretty good chance. I mean, I think that's where like the competitive edge stuff that Reggie Miller yeah. was talking about, the championship DNA that won out at 98, that could still win out at 99. But I mean, they're going against a 22-year-old Tim Duncan in the finals, who's averaging 22-11 and 2.5 blocks David Robinson's only 33, so he's younger than Malone and Stockton during the previous two finals. He's averaging 16 and 10. You've got Sean Elliott, Avery Johnson, Mario Ellie, uh, and Steve Kerr. You know, potentially, Steve Kerr, baby. <laughs> yeah, whatever you're doing with Steve Kerr, whether he stays with the Bulls or not. Um, that's a pretty nice rotation. Then you've got role players who are, uh, you know, Jerome Kersey's been around. Uh, you've got some younger wings. Uh, potentially, you could try to throw on Jordan. Look, Jordan's going to get his points. But I think they just might lose the style battle against that San Antonio Spurs team. And it's easy for everybody to kind of like brush that off because the Spurs are like the most unassuming team of all time. And, you know, people love to kind of like, you know, discount that that title because it came against the Knicks who weren't great and it was a lockout season and everything else. Um, I think there's some real matchup issues uh, for for um, Chicago in that situation. So to answer Devontae's question, I don't think they win their seventh title, Devontae. I'm, I'm officially going to say Spurs in six if Chicago makes the finals. That's my pick. What do you say, Michael? Render a verdict. I got to agree. Uh,
0: I think Duncan and Robinson were just so awesome that season. And it's no... I don't think it's like a coincidence that the, t- the title winner that year was led by someone who's 22 years old and super fresh and spry. And so... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to agree with you on that one.
3: We got another question coming in here from David. He writes, as long as we'll spend a couple more podcasts on Jordan worship, this is definitely worth talking about. Well, David, you know us so well. He goes, I just came across this Gatorade commercial on Instagram. Look it up if you don't remember. I'll set the scene. Jordan circa 1998 shoots in an empty gym. Then what appears to be a 1988 or 89 Jordan shows up and challenges him to one-on-one. They proceed to play. Young Jordan is brash and dunking from everywhere. Old Jordan uses his crafty post moves and perfected mid-range game. All the while, they engage in healthy trash talk and banter. It's just awesome. And I think you need to bring it to the open floor globe's consciousness. Michael, am I right that Jamal Crawford plays the young Jordan at one point? Like, they don't show his face, but I think he's the body for young Jordan. Um, <laughs> I believe he's revealed that on Twitter, uh, which is which is really cool because Crawford is like a huge Jordan stan. Um, and always has been just a little known detail. Um, I want to build off this email and this great reminder from David. Michael, we've now seen the whole last dance, the whole caboodle. What vintage Jordan, if Jordan's career was wine, what's your favorite year and why? I
0: got to go, this is kind of nostalgia based. I got to go 96, 72 and 10 Woo. first year back. Uh, you know, he's got the Space Jam Jordans. He wants to rip out everyone's throat, uh, and avenge the previous season's loss in his first year back from, from baseball. Uh, I, I mean, I personally, this is the first Jordan that I can remember watching in real time. Uh, I would beg my parents to let me stay up to watch, uh, to watch the finals against the Seattle Supersonics and that, that season just means a lot to me as a, as a basketball fan. And I fell in love with Rodman. I fell in love with Pippen. Uh, I love that team. Uh, I loved, uh, yeah, I loved everything about Jordan for that year. And I I just, that's gotta be it for me. I mean, and it's one of the best teams of all time. And, um, there was a lot of, I don't want to say doubt that he could do it, but to do it as he did, uh, in coming back from, from baseball was just so impressive and so like legacy cementing. Uh, it's 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 tough to pick. It's tough to pick another season than this.
3: No, it's a classic pick. I mean, that was the one year I actually saw Jordan in person, and uh you know, at uh, what they then called the the Rose Garden, which is now the Moda Center. He rips Arvidas Sabonis in the closing seconds, goes down <laughs> for an uncontested dunk to seal the game, and. You know, they've got so many fans there even though the Blazers fans always come out heavy but you know Jordan had fans everywhere. Um, you know, it kind of gets, this... I was about
0: to, I was about to ask you, are you, were you the only person cheering in the crowd or was it, was it, uh, no,
3: I think I was actually standing and praying uh, at that point in my life. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't even think it was cheering. I think it was just pure idol worship. Um, you know, as a, a 13 year genuflection. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, it was just, <laughs> it was just like, here's this clutch guy. Everybody says is clutch coming through exactly how they told us he would night after night after night. Uh, that 96 season was was very, very special. Um, and they were every bit the carnival show, you know, like when they'd come into town, everybody had to get tickets. I mean, there was some crazy ticket package. You had to buy like four preseason tickets just to get a Bulls ticket. You know, it was basically like a five for one deal, um, which, you know, good work by the uh, the Blazers ticket reps, because that's, I guess, what my dad had to buy into to get it. But uh you know, a lifetime memory that was certainly worth that, like, preseason game against the New Jersey Nets or whatever. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. I think I was weighing this a lot. I was really tempted, Michael, by the 86 version, the guy who's just like, screw your minutes limits, screw your Boston Celtics. I'm going out there and putting up 63. I just do not care. And I'm golfing with Danny Ainge during the middle of the series um, because that was not a version that I had known quite as well uh, before this documentary. Ultimately, though, I settled on the 93 version. The 93 Bulls weren't as dominant a team as some of the other, uh, you know, 96, for example, 97, uh, you know, there was other years they had, you know, more impressive overall team accomplishments. I think it was a classic kind of coasting in year three of a three-peat type team. But I felt like that 93 version of Jordan, like best captured his, his physical abilities with the mental edge and the experience advantage and the intimidation factor, right? Like by 96, he's definitely still athletic and can still do a lot of the things. But 93, he's just freaky, freaky athletic. And like going back and watching uh, the 55-point game from that uh, the finals against the Suns, for example, was just revelatory. You know, I'm just sitting there like, oh my God, this guy's just on a completely different level. So for me, I think that winds up being my favorite um, even though, like I said, it wasn't necessarily a, a peak moment for the, the team or the squad. Um, have Has your mind changed about your favorite individual Jordan moment at all, Michael? Is there anything that maybe watching this documentary, you've said, okay, this is now my favorite moment. Him calling Scott Burrell an alcoholic, moves above... Uh, the, the lefty layup in the 91 finals, although I know you hated that um, or thought it, at least thought it was overrated. Is there anything along no, I, the way in terms of specific <laughs> moments? No, I mean, I, I yeah, I wrote down here in, in the outline,
0: my favorite moment is the reverse change hands layup over Sam Perkins. Just so, oh, so iconic, oh, you can't even top
3: it. Michael, Michael, you're arguing both sides now. This is no, crazy. It's like, um, like Joe Lieberman over here. <laughs> I, I'm not
0: sure if... This was in the last two episodes, Um, but just like there was this play where, uh, or I guess I should say uh, a sequence where it's the 97 All-Star game and uh, Dikembe Mutombo is teasing, uh, sitting on a trainer's table with Jordan, behind the scenes footage, and he's teasing him about how the fact that Jordan never dunked on Dikembe and he's never got him and you fast forward to later in that very season and Jordan just like cuts baseline gets a bounce pass I think from Luke Longley and is just size he sizes up Dikembe it's one on one they meet at the summit and Jordan just like throws it down on him and immediately finger wags him which is obviously the trademark Mount Mutombo you know um, move that that Dikembe would do he would wag his finger in your face uh, after he blocked your shot and uh, that is not only just, like, 10 out of 10 hilarious and legendary, but it just it, it, it embodies, like, everything about Jordan's mystique, and, like, he did not forget <laughs> that Kempe Mutombo was talking trash to him, and clearly had it, like, it, it, his it, it, clearly in his agenda for that matchup, he was going to get him, and he did, and so... Stuff like that just is so iconic and basically wraps up everything in my mind when I think about Jordan and why he was so great. So even though it was just kind of a regular, random, regular season uh, game and performance and dunk, like it just means a lot when you when you kind of zoom out and look at it big picture.
3: No, I mean, he took Matumbo's girlfriend and then he took his car. I mean, that's basically what <laughs> happened, right? Like, he's just waving it right in his face. Here we go. Um, that's pretty rough. I think that my favorite is, it might sound like a cop out, but it really is the last shot in Utah. But it's the entire sequence leading up to it. It's the quick bucket beforehand. It's the steal, the incredible steal on Malone. Bringing the ball up court, not calling timeout, setting up, and then going to a one on one against Russell where he's already had a game winner over Russell the previous year in the finals. And then he does it again and sends him, you know, skating, uh, you know, on wobbly ankles with a little brush off to me, it's just all aspects of Jordan's career boiled down into one. The incredible competitive desire, the trust in himself, um, no timeout, the two-way play, the incredible instincts to know exactly where and when to to go after Malone, the shot-making ability, the pure shot, which everybody likes, and then also the idea that everyone in that building was just terrified knowing it was going to go in. And that was sort of... uh, you know, this inevitability about Jordan, this invincibility about him all boiled down into that one moment and just a complete domination of the game. It was him and the other nine guys on the court, right? And I how, think, yeah. How many times do you think Carl Malone has watched that play? Well, Carl Malone was not available for the last dance, <laughs> so it's possible he's never rewatched it. We'll never know. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty frustrating to not have him be a part of that project, I will say I gained a pretty healthy level of respect because they showed him going onto the Bulls bus to congratulate Jordan after the title, which I thought was huge. And again, I'm sure they included that footage just to kind of further bury Isaiah Thomas. Um, so <laughs> for, for like walking up the court without shaky hands, I thought that was like a, a really classy gesture by Karl Malone, um, especially because he's pretty late in his career. And like every one of those losses, is just another question of like, am I ever going to get another shot? Right? Um but yeah, I mean for Carl Malone, it probably haunts him. Although I was reading that excellent oral history about Scottie Pippen's diss of Carl Malone, you know, saying Mailman doesn't deliver on Sunday. Exactly. Yeah, I read that too. It was S- terrific. And did you catch the line where they're saying basically after a season ending loss, Malone gets on the bus and he's basically ready to go hunting and fishing and Sloan And Stockton get on the bus, and they have that, like, glassy-eyed stare out into the distance where, like, they don't know how to process the defeat, and it completely wrecks them, and they're not able to move (laughs) on. To me, that sums it all up, Michael. And don't get me started on Stockton, because it could be 45 minutes later before we're done. Um, We got another question here, though, from King Kong, movie villain himself, checking in. He writes, the last dance introduced Michael Jordan's legend to the new generation letting his greatness and goatness absolutely dominate basketball discussion for nearly six weeks. King Kong, we're living proof, man. He says, the last dance was held during the time of year when the playoffs are usually held too. Suddenly, LeBron or Kareem truthers in the goat conversation seem completely fanatical and ridiculous. The 2020 NBA championship has been won by Michael Jordan. Give him his seventh ring. Michael, I appreciate King Kong's over-the-top standing for MJ here. I'm not even sure I can go that far, but what do you think? Do we give Jordan the 2020 championship?
0: <laughs> uh, hopefully an actual basketball team will get the 2020 championship. Uh, but, I mean, this is just a lot of... it's It's gross to say, kind of, but it was perfect timing for this documentary to come out for anyone who didn't know about all that Jordan did and, and why so many people who live through it believe he is the best player of all time and that no one will come close to touching him. Um, I, I think, look, I don't think there was a ton of momentum leaning in LeBron's direction for, you know, the greatest player ever. Um, the, Advancement of analytics has kind of supported that case. And there's a lot of smart people who look at numbers and are able to kind of craft an argument. But I don't know, man. I just think that uh, every generation will kind of pick their favorite player and he will be the best ever. And there will be someone after LeBron. And I don't know. It's like, it's, it's, these are sports and they're really difficult to kind of, uh, get unanimous consensus on but like i thought before all this that jordan was the best and i didn't really understand what the argument could be to to go the other way and this kind of
3: just further like bore that into the ground for me i'm now wondering whether adam Silver's like commissioning a ring for jordan <laughs> per <laughs> king kong's plan i mean he got nothing else to do right um Yeah, I mean, I definitely think this helps Jordan's legacy. There's no question. Um, I think one of my big takeaways, just watching all the Twitter discourse over the last five or six weeks, it did seem like a lot of education needed to be done, you know? I don't know if it's because people forget or not everyone's kind of as obsessed with some of these stories, or maybe people haven't read uh, all the books um, or they've just seen excerpts or, you know there's been a lot of great basketball since 98. And and maybe some of those more recent memories uh, cloud things, or maybe just the younger generation, like he's mentioning, um, you know, just never learned it in the first place. It really did feel like a communal respect for Jordan. Now people were nitpicking with the documentary. I completely understand that. Uh, But in terms of like people just being wowed by his game and having that same feeling uh, that a lot of young basketball fans had in the late 80s, and early '90s, you know, just seeing a, a, a transformational figure, um, I think that was shared, and I think that's a, a huge credit to the project. They didn't get everything right. There's definitely things that annoyed me along the way, um, but I think if the central mission was to basically introduce Jordan's ruthless life philosophy to the world and then capture the magnitude of his winning and how it touched people throughout the course of that decade, I think they succeeded. I have a a, a
0: question for you really quick, Ben. I love questions. Bring Um, it on, Michael. Awesome. So this this kind of popped into my head just when I read this question from uh, our good friend King Kong. Um, What do you think Jordan would have accomplished if he came along after LeBron? So what I mean by that is... I guess you could take lebron's career and put it in the same time period that you basically just switched their uh start dates of their careers and i i think about this from when lebron said that he was chasing jordan's ghost and that was kind of what was driving him And, and jordan did have uh magic and he had larry and those were kind of the two that he was looking at to better and distance himself from but What if, you know, what if LeBron was before that? And and just like, do you think that Jordan's career would have been better if he were chasing someone who was as great as LeBron has been?
3: It's a great question. I mean, I think that there's a gap between LeBron and Magic, right? But I don't think it's that wide of a gap. I mean, guys like Magic and Burr were unreal. And their teams dominated for a long time, right? They were at the center of the discourse. Those were big time targets. And Jordan makes it very clear, like you said, that's who he was measuring himself after. He wanted to win Mm -hmm. three straight because those guys never won three straight. He's dreaming about the seventh title because he's thinking no one's won four straight uh, besides Russell, right? Um, So he's thinking in those kinds of legacy terms. Um, Ultimately, like whatever that benchmark would be, I think that his career is, is playing out pretty similarly because he just ran himself into the ground twice you know that that's basically what happened uh, and so I think he just about maximized how many titles he could have gotten had he gotten himself a little bit uh, more ready more quickly uh, when he came back from baseball maybe he could have snuck that one out um, you know I think that, that title was there for the taking. we've talked about the difficulties he would have trying to win in 99 I mean maybe if he gets more serious about the weight training, And everything else, maybe he can sneak one out in 90 and get one a little bit earlier. But I think by and large, like he retired with the right number. You know how sometimes guys retire and you're like, you know what? They were shortchanged or like, oh, that guy's got more than he really earned. Um, I feel like Jordan 6 is like right on the money, right? I think, you know, pretty much. Um, And so from that standpoint, I don't know if LeBron changes things all that much. Although I mean, maybe his approach to leadership, forces Jordan to tone down a little bit. Like if Jordan's coming later on in the, the history of humanity, maybe <laughs> he has to play a little bit nicer um, because, you know, LeBron is a, kind of a magic, like, you know, leader where he's, you know, somewhat trying to empower people. And uh, it's not all about him. It's not all about this crazy alpha killer stuff and all that. Um, but no, I I'm not sure to be honest. Now that I'm thinking about this, would anything really ever change Jordan's mind or was he just going to be Jordan? I mean, is that, yeah, what he's I mean, down
0: I, I, That's the conclusion that I think I arrive at too, just because as you said, like he just burned himself out twice, or at least once for sure, uh, when he was 29 after the 93 season. So, uh, clearly he was someone who just, uh, wanted to maximize every ounce of energy in his body and his brain and did that. And so I don't really know if someone, before him would kind of have been like a carrot at the end of the stick situation i think he was just going to try to be the absolute best he could be knowing that he had greatness inside him and uh but like yeah if you do try to think about what jordan's personality would have been like in a different era of society it gets really complicated and i don't think we can figure that one out right here
3: Yeah, I mean, I just think he was wound really, really tight, right? And so it's like whatever the the benchmark is, he's going for it. And the other thing, too, is like LeBron never won three in a row either, Um, you know? So like the, the kinds of standards that Jordan was using to judge himself against, like would Jordan have really valued just making the finals eight years in a row, right? Was that is that something that Jordan would have said, oh, yeah, that's something I really want to do? No, he wanted to win the ring no matter what. So I think some of LeBron's most impressive achievements that are going to wind up defining his career would not really have even been on Jordan's radar. He'd be like, wait, what do you mean? You want me to lose three out of four? <laughs> nah, I'm good. I don't want to do that. That sounds, that sounds terrible. Let's golf and smoke cigars and uh, and everything else. I mean, that's one argument you could make. If LeBron had come along before Jordan and had had the same type of approach to his body and physique mm-hmm. and training program and everything else, I think you probably see Jordan smoking fewer cigars. You see him golfing less And you see him adding weight and muscle earlier in his career uh, because, you know, he just didn't have uh, like a superstar to kind of look to who had done things and professionalized the the training side before him. And, um, you know, I think that is one major difference or one major impact LeBron could have had on Jordan. Uh, We got another question here. Comes in from Will. He says, hello, Ben and the pod. Can't say enough about how much I've been enjoying the podcast since the shelter at home was put in place. Keep up the greatness. So nice of you to say that, Will. He continues, my question refers to the greatest players list that ESPN just put out. I saw Jamal Crawford's tweet that he wouldn't take it seriously unless Kobe Bryant was on the uh, the top 10 and how it got me thinking, should there be a different list for legacies rather than just the greatest players? In that case, I could see some of the players dropping on the list and others rising with today's sensibilities and viewpoints it's a great question will it's something that i've always tried to keep in check when i do the top 100 rankings list because look bottom line is if you're doing it on popularity or if you're doing it on cool factor or if you're doing it on past history only or if you're not weighting things quite right you can definitely underrate players easily and you can overrate other players very very easily as well and so it's kind of a delicate balance of like, how much is it about who we talk about and how much is it about who's actually winning games and contributing to wins and those types of things. So I'm, I'm curious, Michael, where do you stand on this idea of greatness versus legacy? How much does maybe myth-making or storytelling or narrative wind up becoming a factor? And I want to posit this, has it become a bigger deal because guys like Kobe and LeBron we're such are kind of like professional storytellers now, like working with media companies, crafting narratives, taking things to a different level. I mean, I think Jordan certainly did that. He tried to have a signature moment in kind of every single one of those finals that we, we can point back to and remember, whether it was a switch hands layup, the six threes, uh, you know, in 93, the, you know, setting up and, and trusting Paxson, uh, 96, uh, you know, winning on Father's Day, 97 flu game, uh, you know, 98. Uh, the last shot. I mean, he definitely had an understanding of like <laughs> the flair for the dramatic and, and capturing yeah, the moment, no, yeah, yeah. right, and everything else. So, you get what I'm saying, though. Like, has has are we starting to take away just from the basketball stuff and go into the storytelling side with this latest generation? I mean.
0: The way I see it is, like, narrative is so powerful because it ties to memory and it it ties to emotion. And so when, you know, if you just looked at the box score from the flu game and you saw that he scored, like, 37 and... Grab eight rebounds and six assists, or whatever it was, in the finals game, and a win in a very critical performance. Like that's very impressive. But when you say that he had the flu, and you have these images of him getting dragged off the court by Scotty, uh, that is just that much more powerful, and it completely changes the whole conversation. So I do think that it matters. I don't know how how calculating Jordan necessarily was compared to some of the more contemporary players and honestly i don't mean to be like a debbie downer but what i fear is some players kind of repeating what jordan did here with the last dance which like by the way his production company jump 23 is uncredited and worked on this this project but like if LeBron and, and Steph and KD and any of the other players who are kind of on that level in terms of just popularity and in our our own uh, imaginations, like if they produce these myth-making documentaries about themselves to kind of buff up their own legacies, I just, I don't think that that's necessary. And it's just it for something, something about it is like a little, a little icky to me. Uh-oh. Um
3: Michael Pina, you better start bracing now, buddy. I think this is going to become the new thing, don't you? Can I ask you, let me ask you a question. Of all the stars since Jordan, who is the player that you don't want to have to watch a documentary (laughs) about? Because let's be honest, like I'm watching a lot of documentaries right now. I'm about to dig into the new Clippers one, Blackballed. I watched the Kevin Durant one on Showtime. And I wrote about that list last week. People should check that out. Um, you know, obviously LeBron's got a million media projects and everything else. Who's the guy from the last 20 years? If they did like a full documentary on his career, kind of myth-making type project that would just drive you nuts. Who's that player? I mean, it's kind of like
0: all of them. What I really want is self-reflection and honesty and transparency and these things that Jordan really didn't give us in this doc, um... Which is bum.
3: well, Michael. But like when, when the beautiful women from the 1600s hired artisan sure. to like paint them, right? They didn't want they didn't want the flaws, Michael. They wanted to look beautiful. They wanted to have feather hats and giant flowing robes. They wanted to look like the picture of, of perfection. They wanted to stand the test of time. They wanted schmucks like you and me to go into art museums five hundred years later and say, "Wow." That woman is beautiful. She must have been even more beautiful in real life. We have no idea what she looked like. Um, You know what I mean? Like, that's what they're trying to get after, right? It's this idealized version of self. It's their own personal vision. And so what you're saying is you do not want any more first-person stories about people's own arcs. You want only impartial third-party documentaries that are a little bit.
0: But I would also, like... I would appreciate I mean, personally, like I love documentaries. They're awesome. But I would really appreciate like if modern players wrote more memoirs and could really like dig into their own psyche and let us study it a little bit more. Um, That would be more interesting to me personally.
3: Wait, wait it's what's It's like that? a book. Is Ex- it like a book? Exactly. A memoir? What's that? <laughs> you crack
0: open the pa- like the binding and you turn pages and your eyes go through sentences after sentences. It's, it's a whole different type of experience. It's so
3: great. The whole time I thought I was the old guy on the podcast, but Michael Pina is out here saying no more first-person media and write books, NBA players. I yeah. love it, Michael. Um, what
0: a take. If I, but to answer your question, I mean, I guess like... I don't even think I would watch Steph Curry's like if he did a, a documentary about himself. I just I couldn't he he just doesn't do it for me in terms of like there's no real controversy. There's no nothing to like sink your teeth into beyond the fact that he was just this great player. So I is really not, I don't think I could learn anything. Is that is that like a fair one?
3: You don't want the three-minute aside of Riley's finger painting and all that. I mean, no, I don't want the
0: behind-the-scenes uh, negotiations with his people and Britta to figure out how they're going to film uh, the next Britta commercial. That's not really what I want at all. Um, it does not interest me.
3: No, I, I, I get that for sure. And there is definitely a line. Look, I'll say this: if people are going to do a serious documentary and they're going to try to kind of present their own personal story. I will always be interested in that, but it's more from the reporter side rather than the fan side because it's sort of like, okay, it's almost like you're getting the opportunity to sit down and talk to the guy and... Um, those situations are always fun, those little one-on-one summits of like, what can you kind of pull from someone? And that's why I loved the, the formatting of The Last Dance where, you know, they've got the iPad and yeah. the director's like right off scene. Sometimes you can hear him every once in a while because you get to feel like the Inquisitor, right? And so projects like that, especially if they're telling stories that we haven't heard before, um, are interesting, Uh, I guess the problem is that we also live in this saturation coverage environment where, like, a lot of it's just getting regurgitated, right? It's like we already know the main stories, the main plot points, because these guys have told them before at various points of their career. Now you're making a movie about it and it's familiar. And I do think that, you know, that was one of the complaints that people who really watched Jordan a lot had about The Last Dance, which is like, well, what if this was really new? Like, a lot of these statements. Um, they might be funny on screen to watch, but like these these ideas have been out there for thirty years, and, and I understand that frustration too. Um, I think we're going to get to a point where it's all too much, even for me, Michael. But I'm not there yet, and I don't reject out of hand this idea of the first, per- you know, the first person documentary or like player controlled media. Uh, I don't love it. I much prefer uh, the, the third party docs. I mean, you know, Ken Burns has kind of been a a leading voice on this stuff and like his sports documentaries are pretty awesome. And like, they're a level of detail that you're just never going to get from, um, anyone besides like the very, very best at his craft. But, um, I guess at this point I still have an open mind in part because we have no real sports to watch. And I I do think a lot of these other second tier and third tier documentaries that maybe are going to pop up here over the next couple of years, um they probably won't get as much attention as anything that yeah. releases right now just because there's a huge no, and you combine content, that
0: right? with you know the fact that millions of eyeballs treated each episode of this like appointment viewing because nothing else was on um you combine that with just the fact that the subject matter transcended sports itself so jordan i was thinking about this over the weekend i don't think I can't think of a celebrity who owned a decade, forget about an athlete, a celebrity, a public person who owned a decade more than Michael Jordan owned the 1990s. I mean, if you just look at the people who were interviewed for this, it drew, you know, Jerry Seinfeld was in it. You had Justin Timberlake getting interviewed. You had two former presidents being interviewed. You had Uh, Dennis Rodman and Carmen Electra and and trips to Vegas, you had all of these things that were permeating all these different points of the culture that stretch beyond basketball fandom. And I don't know, I mean, uh, LeBron can do that, I think for sure. Yeah. LeBron can do that, but I don't know how many other players who are active right now can really enter that conversation. Um, And just to be fair, real quick to Steph, Uh, I would be fascinated to see Steph, you know, like instead of talking about basketball, like discuss what it was like to be in this fishbowl existence during the 2015, 2016 season when Steve Kerr was saying himself that, uh, you know, those pregame shoot around, not shoot arounds, the pregame shooting sessions, the warmups with Curry really reminded him of when he was a player on the Bulls and just the rock star status. And so to be in the public eye to that degree and to kind of transcend celebrity as Steph Curry did during that year, during that apex of, of his career, like that is something I would love to hear about. I would love to hear what that experience was like if he was just unvarnished and just kinda of cutting a vein open for an hour or two in an interview format. That that would be that would be fascinating.
3: Yeah. How many years do you think it would take for him of distance before he could reflect back on that? Because he's still caught up to some degree in in that hype, right? Everywhere he goes, every time he comes to the Staples Center, he's signing 100 autographs for kids, right? Um, Now, they're not on the same level as they were during that peak. I'm granting that 100% in terms of just overall interest in that group. I mean, everybody kind of moves on to the the new flavor of the day. But, um, you know, is that something that takes 10 years for him? Uh, or, or when do you want to hear Steph Curry looking back? Because I do think ultimately like the time element of the last dance did help it, you know, waiting helped. It, it did make it better. Um, and hearing, you know, Jordan feeling just unsettled with how the Bulls thing ended, you know, knowing all the next chapters that came afterwards for him and there were some real failures along the way, you know, during those, those decades, um, you know, professionally uh, at least. So yeah, I, I don't know. What do you think on Steph? Is there a moment... Where you feel like Steph's going to be able to give us that perspective you're craving, like ten years no, after? No, I think he retires ten years is what? a
0: good marker. Maybe
3: even at like
0: the very end of his career, when which very well could be ten years removed from that season, um, and he's just in a different phase of his whole, of his life, um, and his status is completely altered. But he would definitely need to come down from the perch that he's at to kind of offer the right perspective. Um, I think he's a really smart guy, and I think it could be really eye opening. Just to be honest and uh, transparent about what that period in his life was like. But yeah, I mean, the like what makes the last dance so fascinating and one of my favorite episodes was the the Bad Boys episode. Like what makes it so interesting to me is getting, you know, we're almost 30 years removed from that and the emotion and the pain is still there for Isaiah Thomas and the anger is still there in Jordan that's what makes it powerful like it's not you know uh, this is just popping into my head but like Andre Drummond tweeting that he's upset that the the Pistons traded him without telling him like no one cares like like it's just, it's like the tweets and it's like 20 the 24 hour news cycle just doesn't compare to something like that that's just it's decades old it's it's like my entire life has passed before these two events and these guys are still holding on that is incredible
3: Yeah, I hear what you're saying on the drumming part. We definitely have like way more access to guys like just petty situations that we ever would have had, you know, years ago. But we also do have some like real lingering resentments, right? Like Cavaliers, Warriors, those teams really hated each other. They made an awful lot of cupcakes and other weird like party favors to like make fun of each other at various points. And I do think if enough time passes, those guys might open up. But another problem of the saturation media culture, I think sometimes when there are like real legitimate things, it winds up coming out in these like subtle shots or these sub tweets or whatever else, rather than kind of just direct confrontation, like with the Pistons and the Bulls. And, you know, maybe I guess what I'm hoping for is like the the way to make Steph Curry interesting is for LeBron to to do a movie 15 years from now talking about how much he resented the Warriors success and everything else. And then Steph Curry has to fire back with his own, right? And it's just like, all right, you know, I've been the nice guy here for 15 years, it's time for me to set the stage. And Ideally, someone merges the two ventures together into the same project, and we get ourselves something awesome. We'll see if it ever, uh, you know, comes to that, uh, you know, fruition, or if that's how it plays out. But I just think it's something for all fans to watch here, as we're looking at this myth-making thing, uh, because you know, players are getting way more sophisticated. They have way more access to resources to tell these stories. And they also stand a lot to benefit, you know, I think that you're seeing, you know, certain players definitely be lifted up in in kind of history's eyes, um, you know, by these developments. And, Michael, it almost makes me want to go back in time and find some of like those forgotten players from like the seventies and eighties and nineties and like redo their myths for them. Like, I mean, I did this with the Stockton column today, but it's like, look, someone needs to stand up for these guys who didn't stand up for themselves because they are going to get kind of trampled by the noise. One hundred percent.
0: Right? I mean, right now, in part because of the Last Dance, I've, I'm going back and I'm like buying and reading all of these different books that guys wrote. Either during their careers or after their careers, like Wilt Chamberlain wrote a few books, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wrote a few books, Shaq wrote a few books, um, Barkley wrote a few books. Like, I'm, um, I just, uh, those are just these time capsule documents that really let you in on what the player was thinking. And it's not necessarily going to be like a factual representation of history, but what it is is their perspective, honestly. And that's like that's a priceless thing. And I don't think that players today give that because there's just too much at stake financially, uh, you know, branding-wise, and that sort of thing. So it's it's like that's just what I wish we could get. Um, if players are going to try to tell their own stories, if they did it in a way that was not self-aggrandizing and not necessarily to uh, to 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 buffer out the blemishes on what they did or did not do throughout their lives. Like that. that's that's just what I want personally as both a fan and as a journalist.
3: No, I hear you. And I think that's the right note to close on, Michael. Keep it real, players, with your media. Tell us how you really feel. That really worked well for Michael Jordan in this documentary. The best moments, like Michael said, were the raw tension, him speaking directly at his foils and his rivals. Let's hope this spawns an entire genre of angry Grudge wielding basketball lunatics out to write their own stories and uh, rip up their rivals in the process. Would be great. (laughs) It would be good for us, anyways, Michael. All right. We're going to double back later this week. We're going to talk about uh, the impressive 1998 Indiana Pacers around Reggie Miller. Very deep tough team. They went seven games in that Eastern Conference Finals. We got some questions about the Pacers. We also got some questions and we're going to dig in a little bit deeper on the Jazz um, who made the finals in both 97 and 98 and got a decent amount of screen time uh, during episodes 9 and 10 of The Last Dance, but not quite enough to my liking, Michael. I was a little bit upset, so we're going to dig in there as well. Um, And then, of course, we'll break down that final scene, uh, you know, the incredible uh, retelling of game six of the 98 finals um, on the next episode. Until then, Michael, people can email us openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. As I mentioned, this is probably our last real week of Last Dance coverage. So if you have any other questions at all about the NBA, please send them in. We would love to hear from you. Also, check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for open floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars to help us spread the word. It's just that easy. Michael is on Twitter and Instagram at Michael Vias and Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. On Twitter at BenGolver. Hey, Michael, until later this week. Talk soon, Ben. I will talk to you. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member
2: entrance for the win. Unbelievable! When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com/slash-with-amex.
1: Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh?
2: Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country.